Welcome to The Author Reads. Hi, it's me again, Steve Daniels, and this is episode eight of The Author Reads. Last week, Lynn read us an extract from her autobiographical novel, My Adopted Life, A Birth Mother's Story. This is part of a trilogy recalling a life from three different points of view, an exciting technique which allows the reader to become totally immersed. So, with no further preamble, here is Lynn reading from the second book in her trilogy, My Adopted Life, The Adoptive Mother's Story. Hello everybody, it's Lynn Osbald Eston here, and today I am going to be reading an excerpt from the second book in my trilogy, My Adopted Life, under my pen name, AHMBC. This week we follow the story where me as a baby is placed with my adoptive parents and the title of this book is The Adoptive Mother's Story. The two women looked at each other. Abigail was astonished to see the woman in front of her was not a young mother, but she looked to be in her late 20s or early 30s. The social worker introduced the two by first names only and then said she would give them five minutes to chat and then it would be time to head to the train station. She made quite sure that both women were sat on the battered settee before she left the room, telling them that she was just in the hallway should they want her. Abigail nodded and moved closer to the woman to get a glimpse of this sleeping baby girl that was soon to be her daughter. The woman had instinctively pulled the baby closer to her when Abigail moved, and this made the child squirm, but not waken. We will keep her middle name as Teresa as you wanted, and she will be raised as a Catholic. That is until she's old enough to have her own opinions and choices, Abigail said, her eyes not moving from the baby's face. She has an older brother, and I'm sure he will be thrilled when they meet. We will do the best we can to give her a good life, and we will keep her safe. I know it will take time for the little one to settle, but in time all will be well. It was at this point that Lizzie Brady stood and offered her daughter to this woman called Abigail, a woman who Lizzie was now entrusting the daughter she could not keep to be her new mother. As Abigail stood, her arms came forward and she took the baby, and Lizzie said, yeah, all will be well, and left the room quickly, leaving her daughter to start a new life with her new mother. Abigail stared at the door that Lizzie had just gone out of and felt really quite sad for the woman. She was amazed at the composure that the woman had shown, and with the speed she had relinquished the baby. It was almost as though the woman called Lizzie was relieved it was over. It was as though the woman had not one bit of emotion in her body for this child. Abigail couldn't fathom how, how somebody could be so detached about giving a baby up. She had expected tears from the birth mother. Well, some sort of seemed to be honest, as this what had, what was what had happened when they collected their first one that they had adopted. That birth mother had been hysterical, and the sounds that had emanated from that small young woman was something Abigail had hoped never to hear again. It was the sound of raw grief, painful, harrowing, and very disturbing. The screams of that young woman haunted Abigail for months after her and Charlie had run down the corridor in the convent in Surrey, nuns behind them holding the poor woman back and nuns either side of them urging them to hurry. Then being bundled into the car, the baby almost thrown onto her knee and Charlie to go as fast as he could until they were out of sight. As the car sped off, Abigail thought she saw someone fighting with the nuns but convinced herself she was wrong. It was too much to bear knowing that this boy, who was now her son, had had a mother who was under the impression she could keep a child, 
and had had him ripped from her arms minutes after they signed that form. The poor young girl had been well and truly lied to. Abigail could not believe how smoothly it had gone for her this time and turned her attention to the sleeping child. She stared at the tiny face, taking in every detail. The closed eyes with the long brown lashes, the shape of the soft feathery eyebrows, chubby cheeks, button nose and the little mouth slightly open as the tiny thumb had fallen when that deep relaxing sleep had enveloped the child completely. Her little hand making a fist with thumb, damp with saliva, laying on her face. Only when the door opened and her husband came to her side did she take her eyes off the child. In a low voice that was choking with emotion, Abigail kept repeating over and over, She's ours. Until, blinded by tears of joy, she passed the baby to her new father. This one will be different, Abigail thought as she reached for her handkerchief and wiped away the tears. As she stood watching her husband hold their new daughter, she felt as though her life were complete. Married to a man of status, mother of two children, one boy, one girl, the perfect family. A family who she knew had been engineered from other people's misfortunes, but that misfortunate start in life could now be disregarded by her and would never be fully revealed to the children. That was law. Once the judge had granted them legal ownership of a child and the adoption was complete, the children's past would disappear, never to be raised or spoken of again, unless it was absolutely necessary. The social worker gave them some baby milk, half a dozen Terry Tarling nappies and some waterproof pants to see them over until they got organised and said she would be around to see them next week. The time of the appointment was on the card in the bag. It's time to leave now and I'm sure your little boy will be missing you and wondering where you are, the social worker said as she looked with delight at the scene in front of her. She liked her job. It was a mixture of sadness and joy, but it was always about the babies for her, seeing them placed with people who had been vetted so that there was no doubt they would be good parents and that the child would be raised properly. It always gave her a sense of achievement. She thought of herself as quite a life changer who could be proud of all those children that she had organised proper families for, and she loved the thanks that was lavished on her on days like this. Now all she had to do was get rid of them, take Lizzie Brady to Lime Street, and get her on the train and then she could go home and get ready to go dancing. Let me get the door for you while, we, while you wrap the baby up in her shawl properly. It's still a bit of wind out there and the last thing we want her to take with her is a bad cold. Now if you're ready, let's get you going. The sooner you get back home, the sooner you can all get to know each other, the social worker said encouragingly. Once again the key turned in the lock and that dreadful grating sound was heard, but this time not as loudly. It was muted by the sound of babies crying, a crescendo of noise that echoed up the staircase and faded slowly. Abigail shivered uncontrollably as she heard the wails of so many more babies and wondered if they would be found happy families and be saved from the shame of their beginnings. It was almost as if those babies were saying goodbye to her daughter and for some reason it unsettled her. Mr and Mrs Hennessy walked down the path towards the car. Eventually they got the passenger door open and before Abigail got in she turned and looked at the grand house, staring at every window, hoping never to see the place that was so full of sadness again for as long as she lived. Then with a sigh she clambered onto the front seat, pulled the door firmly shut and took the baby from her husband. Once she was settled the car pulled away, taking her and her daughter on a new road and to a new way of life. Thanks Lynn. I can't wait until next week's extract to see what you, as a child, made of it all. 
suppose I'd better do a bit of work now. Yes, I believe that in this week's episode, things get very tense as Karen tries to escape in episode eight of The Eggs of Saramova. So over to you, Steve. Time is running out for Karen. Having been abducted from Earth by the Saramovans and taken to the planet of Kuroron, she is scheduled to become a surrogate mother. Unknown to her, the Kuroronian named Kangarar is a member of the Kuroronian resistance and is on his way to meet the resistance leader, Connie Moore. The Eggs of Saramova, Episode 8 Night was beginning to fall as they reached the encampment high in the foothills. It nestled in an old quarry, a collection of dust-coloured tents almost invisible in the twilight. Kangarar dismounted and Takran was led away to be fed and watered. Connie Moore was there to greet him. Kangarar, old friend, he hugged him. What news from Blighted City? Aido is getting stronger and talking of war with Kororon. I believe he has already started to man the armaments and be known to Sultan. They walked up to the largest of the tents. And the ship that came in yesterday, Connemore ventured as they entered, contained six females of a compatible species from the planet Earth, Kangar answered. They begin their wickedness tomorrow. I have planned an escape route for the one that has been woken, but I will need to be armed to overcome the guards at the door. Connie Moore frowned. But that would mean blowing your cover. I think that the time has come when my covert operations need to be replaced with more open actions. So be it. I'll arrange a light pistol for you. What is that? It's a new toy that the troops have developed. Malakar's unit managed to confiscate a few, amongst other valuable items, in a raid last night. You point it at your target, pull the trigger, and a beam of light cuts down your opponent. Each beam can last up to four seconds, so if you don't hit the target straight away, you just move the beam until you do. It's impossible to miss, even for a lousy shot like you, Kangaroo. Connie Moore gestured for Kangaroo to sit with him at a trestle table. At the other end, three other members of the Kangaroo were finishing plates of rather unappetizing-looking stew. They acknowledged Connie Moore and Kangaroo as they sat down. Get bitter. The Kuroronian of that name looked up as Connie Moore spoke. When you finish your meal, find one of those light pistols for friend Kangaroo. Creputar nodded his assent. You say you have a plan to free the rescued one, but what about the others? I see the hostage value of the one, but this would be increased if we could be rid of the rest. Two plates of stew were brought, along with cutlery, and placed before them. Kangaroo began eating to give himself time to think of a suitable reply. Finally, he spoke. They are intelligent creatures, Connie Moore. I would not like to hurt any of them, but they cannot be rescued while they are still in stasis. The one called Kararen, the Woken One, will buy us time, and I have an idea forming as to how we can get the Saramovans to wake the others, but I would like to sleep on it before I discuss it further. 
Connie Moore nodded. Supposing I accept your hypothesis that you can free the Walken one tomorrow, persuade the Saramorbans to wake the rest, then free them also, what would you have us do with them? We turn them to earth. What? Connie Moore dropped his knife in surprise. Gangara, lover of all things. Why? Because that is where they belong. Leaving aside the question of how for one moment, and what you're suggesting is surely impossible, what good could that do us? It seems strange that I should be telling you to look for the long term, Connymore. But have you thought what life will be like when the Saramovans have been wiped out? Why, it'll be glorious. For a while, yes. But you cannot live on euphoria forever. Most of our trading partners have been introduced to us by the Saramovans. We may not be too popular when we have wiped them out. In fact, we may not have any friends in the galaxy at all. If they launch a trade embargo against us, then the Kuroronian people's way of life will suffer, as will your popularity. Connie Moore pondered this for a while. Ah, you're right, friend Kangara. I've been too busy fighting battles when I should have been fighting the war. Ah, you've given me too something to sleep on. We'll continue this conversation in the morning. Preputar approached the table and attracted their attention with a small cough. He was carrying a small handheld pistol with a pencil-thin white barrel about seven inches long. He preferred it to Connie Moore, who took it with a word of thanks. Preputar nodded and left. Connie Moore studied the instrument, noted that the safety device was in position, and handed it to Kangarar. You fancy some target practice? he asked. Kangarar smiled. Yes, I do, if only to prove to you that I'm not a lousy shot. They rose from the table and made their way out of the tent. It was almost fully dark now, or as fully dark as it was likely to get. Ioto was almost full and bathed the quarry in an eerie green light. Ayala was merely a thin pink crescent low on the horizon, barely visible to the naked eye. Connemore and Kangaraa walked out towards the quarry entrance where the light was strongest. Connemore made their presence known to the two Kamara on lookout duty before retreating back into the quarry a short distance. He deactivated the safety device and aimed the light pistol at a small sapling growing out of the quarry wall. The beam hit the wall slightly to the left. He tracked it to the right, leaving scorch marks on the stone, until it came into contact with the sapling, which promptly burst into flames, briefly illuminating the immediate area. Kangaraa took the pistol. How many charges does it carry? he asked. Ten. Connemore pointed to a small panel of lights on the base of the pistol. As you can see, there's eight lights left on and two off. That indicates there are eight charges left. In which case, I shall save them for when they are needed. Your little demonstration was sufficient to convince me of its usefulness. Kangaraa turned the pistol over in his palm. Where is the safety device? Connemore showed him how to arm and disarm the pistol and Kangaraa tucked it into his belt. The two Kuroronians made their way back to the centre of the camp, where Connie Moore showed Kangaraa to a tent and bade him good night. 
Inside the tent, Malo Carr was sleeping soundly in his skin bag. Kangaroo checked the canvas bed to his right. It was empty. A skin bag was neatly wrapped at the top end. Kangaroo disrobed, rolled the light pistol up in his uniform, which then doubled as a pillow, eased himself noiselessly into the skin bag and tried to finalise his plans. His actions over the next sunrise to sunset were going to be critical. One false move on his part would not only spell death for him and Kauren, it would bring down the whole of the camera as well. And now for a change of pace, as our guest this week is children's author Helen Parkhill, who reads not one, but two stories. The first, Who Has All the Chips and Scones? And the second is called Cats to Keswick. Where did all the chips and scones go? Eh? Authors Helen and Luca. Illustrations by Helen Parkhill. Sonny stepped out from his nest in his usual carefree way. With a gust of wind on his face, his tail feather swished from side to side. He took a mental note. West wind a bit blustery. South wind, not too bad. Hmm, looks like a fine day and there will be plenty of chips and scones, as he smiled. Sonny thought to himself, I'll pop into town, see what there is. Sonny swooped down by Lowther Street and waited at the crossing. He expected that he would have to wait for the buses to go by, but not today. No buses. Sonny crossed the road and wandered on to the main street, past the coffee shop where the nice lady secretly sometimes gives him some scone crumbs. But none today. The coffee shop was closed. Sonny waddled up into town. The sky looked so blue. It was just beautiful. He looked at the old town clock. Something's not quite right, he thought. Where are all the people? The whole street was empty. Nobody to be seen. Sonny started to feel a little bit worried as he would normally have chips and scones for breakfast, lunch and tea. As he peered into the closed fish and chip shop, Sonny looked round to see if there were any chip boxes. Not a chip or scone in sight. Sonny sighed. Sonny looked round to see if there were any of his friends or other fellow seagulls, but none. Where had they gone? Sonny decided to fly to Sillith, then north to Scotland, and spotted a Scottish seagull called Scott McGull. Sonny asked if he knew where all the chips and scones had gone. Scott McGull said, Don't come near, we're all on Loch Dune here. What's Loch Dune? Sonny asked. Scott, M- Scott McGull said, There's a virus, you can't see it, and it infects people. And that's why they've closed lots of places. Sonny asked, Are there any chips or scones in your area? No, said Scott McGull, but you can have some of my shortbread if you want. Thanks, said Sonny, so he took a piece with him. Sonny then flew on to Portsmouth and came across a seagull from Ireland. The Irish seagull was called Sean. Are you looking for food? You can have some of my wheat and bread, Sonny said. Thank you, and some wheat and bread, and took some wheat and bread. Sonny flew to Dover, where white cliffs were so beautiful, and he came across a French seagull called Chloe. Bonjour, she said, which means hello. Ça va, which means how are you? Sonny said, well, everyone has been kind. I'm looking for chips and scones. 
Chloe said, Here, you can have some of my baguette. Thank you, said Sonny. Sonny spotted a German seagull called Steff. Guten Tag, he said, which means good day. I have some sausages, if you'd like. Sonny said, thank you. He realised that he couldn't carry all of the food. Sonny spotted a basket, which he placed all of the food items in. It was a mask, but Sonny didn't know this. So off, off Sonny flew and spotted the most beautiful beach he had ever seen. It had golden sands and he carefully lowered the, his wings and landed softly into the sand, which felt amazing on his scaly feet. He took off the carrying device, mask, and looked into all of the lovely things he had collected. There was shortbread, wheat and bread, baguette, sausages. Ah, he thought, how kind, but he longed for chips and scones. He looked over at the beach. It was so quiet and there were no people, but he could just see an ice cream van which read Devon scones. No people were there apart from a man with a sign saying he does deliveries. Outside there were seagulls hovering around saying he's just dropped a scone, go for it. And at that moment the scone was gone. Sonny ate it. The seagulls were saying I want sausages and the other said I want wheat and bread. One said he could just eat some shortbread and from that moment Sonny knew everyone had different food they liked. Sonny lowered the basket, mask down, and said, Seagulls, here are the items you are looking for. Sonny still didn't have any chips, but an American seagull called Dwayne, who was eating a big ring donut, said, You looking for chips? Help yourself on me. All the seagulls were happy, sharing their food between each other, and soon other seagulls joined from the world, dropping off food in designated food zones, especially for seagulls. The world united together with the winds of change. Cats to Keswick. Authors Helen Parkhill and Luca. Illustrated by Helen Parkhill. Meet the characters of this book. The boat cats, Samphire and Seaweed. The bus driver, George. Anton, Franco, Arietta, Cactus and Muffin, Jill, Eep and Jeremy. I hear the letterbox. Let's go out for the day, said Cactus. It's the post with my bus pass. We're going on the bus, said Cactus. Muffin said, what about me? We'll get you a half, said Cactus. What's a half? It's a ticket for junior cats. Where are we going to? said Muffin. Keswick today, said Cactus. Beep, beep. <coughs> Muffin jumped up and down. Cactus packed a lunchbox of tuna and Cumbrian cheese sandwiches, along with a flask of water, milk chocolate, cookies, muffins, walking equipment, maps, a survival blanket and a medical kit, as they would be going up a fell called Latrig. They waited at the bus stop. Muffin kept asking, Is the bus nearly here yet? When will it arrive? Is it nearly here, Cactus? The bus arrived and Cactus presented his pass to the bus, bus driver. Hello, said the driver. Where to today? Cactus asked the driver for a half ticket. Muffin asked, Where shall we sit? Take your pick, said Cactus. There were other cats on the bus and lots of empty seats, so Muffin went straight to the back of the bus. This is the life, said Cactus.
cactus reached into his rucksack and picked up a leaflet all about Keswick. He handed it over to Muffin to read. Muffin said, look, we can go to the Lake District. Or the theatre. There are so many mountains to climb and animals to meet. Herdwick sheep can cope with extreme weathers, not like us, with our coats, snow, wind and rain. The motorway was busy, but it wasn't long before they had arrived at Penrith, where they could just see the butchers, the bakers and supermarkets. They finally spotted the sign for Keswick and also a sign to Kendall. They wanted to go there next time. The bus continued on to Keswick and the doors opened. The driver said, everyone off. Muffin and Cactus gazed at the breathtaking scenic sights and ran over to see a horse called Jeremy, who was the equivalent of an information booth. He was very knowledgeable and he told them to go to the local chip shop, which he said served the the best fish with the nicest tartar sauce. He also said to visit the pasty shop and to take home a loaf of bread from the local bakery and to the chocolate shop. They thanked Jeremy. So we need to travel up that big fell, said Muffin. Yes, said Cactus, it's not that big. It's called Latrick. Cactus asked Muffin to tie his shoelace on his walking boots. It's so important to try to be as safe as you can whilst walking. They passed some walkers on the way up the fell. After an hour of exhausting climbing, Muffin shouted, She's there, the Eep. The Eep came to see them and said, Bad weather today up here. Where would you like to go? To travel on the boats, please. So off we go, down the hills, under the trees, down the path, over the stream. Here we are. Nice to meet you. Muffin and Cactus continued on the path and Cactus pointed out the fell names. Look, there's Catbells and you can see Bath and Skiddaw over there and Helvellum is one of the biggest in the Lake District. They headed towards the lake. They met a goose who said, You're lucky. They expire tomorrow, those tickets. You can't use them tomorrow. Don't make a mess on my boat. Sit on B1 and B2 window seats on the left, indoor or outdoor. Here's your life jackets. Muffin was glad he brought his scarf. They remembered the eep saying the weather was blustery. They decided to sit inside. The mist on the lake made it difficult to see further than your paw and you could just pick out the fells and some sailing boats. The mist cleared and the boat docked. The ducks were pecking at their feet and the boat cats were helping to steer the boats back to the jetty. All right, lads, did you have a nice trip? The boat cats smelled a bit fishy as they had seaweed draped round their legs. They had the best gear on which looked like it would keep them dry. I'm hungry, said Cactus. So they pulled out a sandwich, but the ducks kept trying to peck out their bread. One giant duck jumped up and snatched the sandwich, taking it back to his duck friends. The shop owner shouted, No feeding the ducks with bread! Have you not read the sign? There was a huge sign which said, Do not feed the ducks. Only duck seed, please, by here. Cactus replied, Sorry, Muffin, didn't read the sign, and the duck snatched it. They walked over to the most beautiful scenery and seat. You could see the lake and all the swans. Look, you can see cat bells. They had a flask of hot chocolate. Muffins, tuna and cheese sandwich had been eaten by the duck, so he ate a carrot and milk chocolate muffins instead. It was time to check out the shops. They both purchased a cone of chips 
and enjoyed eating all the crunchy bits at the bottom of the comb. They then headed to the chocolate shop and purchased chocolate truffles, ginger jam, then to the baker's and purchased a Battenberg cake to take with them. It was time to head home, so they headed for the bus. What a great day, Cactus. Yes, Muffin. Thank you, Helen. Weren't they delightful? They were indeed. And like all good children's stories, there was a message behind the imaginative words. Well, that about wraps it up for today. There'll be another podcast next Tuesday with some more entertaining and thought-provoking stories for your enjoyment. 